0: When you're in a meeting and, you, you know, you can sit there, you've got the opportunity to observe, take the minutes of the unspoken. So the unspoken's in uh, where people sit, what the body language is like, who's, who's talking the most, who's chairing and why, who are they listening to. There's power dynamics in every relationship, and especially where we, we come together as strangers to get things done. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we travel to Nipaluna, Lutra Weta, which in the language of Australia's First Nations people is Hobart, Tasmania, where we speak with Melinda Maddock, a political strategist, writer and facilitator of both workshops and professional learning. Melinda has shaped a career as a political advisor and senior government executive with a broad range of experience in campaigning, public policy, systems thinking and organisational culture. She now runs her own consulting business, Mad Finch, where she helps people to use their power to create change at work and in communities. And this year, Melinda published her first book, How to Train Your Political Animal, a power handbook for changing yourself and your world. Melinda Maddock, welcome to GovComs.
0: Hi, David. Thanks for having me.
1: So listen, let's start at the beginning, the Melinda Maddox story. Um, Are you a native Tasmanian?
0: Yes, I'm a native Tasmanian. I'm the great-great-granddaughter of convicts, and I'm also the daughter of an Irish migrant. So I grew up on the very politically dynamic island of Tasmania.
1: And listen, when in your growing up did you start to, to take an interest in politics and think that it was a place for you, a place where you could make an impact. I,
0: I was brought up in a family that strongly values justice and fairness. So I think um, it comes from parents who, who didn't go to university. I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, it comes from having a father who was... Uh, brought up in Belfast, so I watched The Troubles on the news every night, and I was fascinated by what was happening in Northern Ireland. And uh, we always wanted to do what was right for people, and so I was raised in that context. And of course, Tasmania um, is very, as I said, politically dynamic, and I went to my first rally, actually, when I was a toddler with my mother, pushing us along in a pram, my brother and I, um, to protest the dismissal of Gough Whitlam. Uh, so uh, not that I can remember it, but I was there. Uh, so uh, it started at a very young age.
1: And in in terms then of the, the, the family discourse and, and you as you as you grew up through your primary school and then high school, years did you did you start to play uh, take an, an active interest and in, and in being a participant in in yes. uh, political discussion and social justice yeah, issues i
0: did yes i did um so you know around the kitchen table we would talk about uh, of the issues and things that were going on and the question that always was asked was well what what can we do about it so i had that firmly in my mind so um in, in uh, grade six, in my last year of primary school, I um, organised a sit in, a protest, um, because uh, they, they weren't going to allow the, the, it was a small primary school, they weren't going to allow the two grade six classes to go to camp together. So I organised this um, sit in on the playground after the lunch bell had gone. We put our school jumpers on back to front, which was really rebellious. And, um, and, uh, I guess I just had in my mind um, that, you know, it's important that if you care about something, to do something about it. And then I went on in high school um, to organise a, a national petition for um, world peace at the time. So I'm
1: sure everyone's thinking what happened with the sit in? Did the two year six classes, were they able to go to camp together?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, we won. Yeah, we won. We had a victory there over the sieges. And so, uh, yes, won that battle. It was a great, great lesson. And what did you learn out of that lesson? Uh, I guess I learned that I could do something. So, you're not really aware of power dynamics when you're, you're young, can't articulate it, but, um, you know, it's there are very strong power dynamics in schools, very structured places. And if I didn't like how something was done, I questioned it. So I guess I always was a critical thinker and always questioning, well, is this the, the right thing? So um, if it's not, can I change it?
1: It's, it's a certainly a really powerful, formative action, I'm sure, that you saw the power of action and that you know to make change that you actually have to do something and you have to be able to articulate why you believe in your particular case as you did back there in year six but that must have given you a lot of confidence.
0: Yes it did and what I also learned was to have people alongside you was really important. If it was just my voice uh, then it might not have been successful but if we can rope a few others in uh, then we had more chance of of success so it did give me confidence but i wasn't I wasn't an extroverted kid um, and i I'm, I'm an introvert and so what it was is a, a quiet confidence I suppose a very internal thing
1: but again going through that when you were trying to organize that particular group do you can you remember and do you think back that, you know, I have to get my arguments right, I have to get the language right, I have to get the timing right, or was it just something that 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 came? Were you were you strategically working through it, or were you was it just happening around you?
0: I I reckon I cooked it up at home with my parents, and mm. then just went and did it. I think um, it was how it happened. I, you know, I am a strategic person, but. probably, Possibly not age 12. I I, I can't remember. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I think it, it was probably something we said, well, we've got to change this. What can we do? And, uh, you know, a few friends and I just did that.
1: <laughs> and do you remember your parents' reaction?
0: They were pretty proud of me. Yeah. Uh, I bet yeah, they were. Pretty, yeah, they were pretty proud of me for... Standing up for something. It's a tiny thing to stand up for, but to exercise my voice and to get a change that benefited not just me, but my uh, classmates. And in terms
1: of your World Peace uh, survey, your World
0: Peace program, what happened to that? So um, when I was in year nine, it was International Year of Peace, and I was watching the the news and the US bomb, bombed Livia um, and uh, I was pretty horrified at the time and um, anxious as kids were uh, in the 80s um, also you know f- afraid of the Cold War that was going on so I I was just sitting there getting upset about it and I remember my mum was ironing at the time uh, and um, and she said, well, what, what do you want to do about it? What can you do about it? And then we talked about it and came up with the idea of having a petition, which started off being with Tasmanian school students, um, a petition for nuclear disarmament. And so we had some help from a senator, a Tasmanian senator, to draw that up. And we got that going um, statewide. I went to a Small high school, but they were very supportive and helped us get that going Tasmania wide, and then it went national. So we ended up uh, having the the uh, petition of seventy five thousand signatures of Australian high school students, and we tabled it when it was tabled um, in the old Parliament House. It was the largest petition tabled on a single day at that point. So, this is before electronic petitions. And I uh, ended up presenting it to Bob Hawke uh, as Prime Minister on the steps of Parliament House in Canberra. Uh, And that was another big achievement, which I was very proud of.
1: That's amazing. (laughs) <laughs> that might, you know, take me through that moment where you're sort of, you know, in the car driving towards Old Parliament House with a a 75,000 signature petition. And again, what what did that teach you? What did, I, what did that whole experience teach you?
0: Yeah, yes, it was, uh, I was very nervous because, of course, it was uh, a big media scrum at the time and... Um, uh, being a shy person, you know that made me very nervous. Uh, but we did it. We did it with a school friend of mine, and a teacher was there as well, supporting us. And um, and there are amazing photos uh, on the steps of of Parliament House, and I was very, very um, happy to do that. And I think that's where I got that real lesson in in power and your ability as a young person to to come up with an idea, put it into action, and then to be there with the, the you know, most powerful people in the land who um, who are listening to you and can change the way they think or change what they do as a result of what you've managed to get going, which was a pretty amazing thing for a 14-, 15-year-old to learn.
1: Yeah, it's incredible, really, that you were able to have the idea, bring it together, and have the confidence and the drive and the nows to actually, you know, get it to that position where it became a, a, a national event. And we'll make sure that we get some of those uh, photos and put those up in the show notes. That'd be uh, fantastic to be able to uh, yeah, share that uh, with the audience as well, because that's a, a wonderful achievement. So clearly then you know you're on this path to activism uh early um and and you're having this ongoing success so where to from there was it to university was it to student politics what what's the melinda matic story from there
0: so you would think from there that i'd be a greta Thunberg type person but that wasn't who i became uh i think because I was more introverted, I sought to use my power more quietly. So I went to university and did um, political science and and loved it. And then uh, then coming out of university, I had two job offers on one day. Uh, I got into the Department of Industrial Relations in Canberra, passed that exam, and I was also offered to work for the Labor Party in, in opposition in Tasmania. So. At that time, uh, all my friends were leaving for work. Um, Tasmania was a fairly depressed place at that time. So people were leaving for work. And so to stay went a bit bit against the flow. But I loved politics so much at the time that I decided to stay and work um, for um, the former Premier Michael Field at the time uh, and probably learnt more in a week of that work than I did in a whole degree of political science because being up close to to politics was an extraordinary experience. So you had the
1: opportunity to work in the office of the opposition leader, is that right?
0: Yes, yes. So I did um, electorate work, administration work to start off with. I started doing policy research. Oppositions aren't um, very well resourced, so there's only a few of us doing the work, so uh, I got to, to do all that um, exploring and just observing and, and listening and paying attention.
1: And how long did you spend in the opposition leader's office?
0: Uh, so it was a couple of years. I went overseas, did my big um, backpacker trip as, uh, in that time as well uh, and came back and then uh, Labor got into government so I ended up in the Premier's office um, in the late 90s. Uh, doing a job as a political advisor, which really did suit me. Now,
1: we'll come to your book in a minute, because I imagine a lot of the lessons that you'd uh, learnt, um, not only from your your childhood, but also from your time uh, in politics, is in the book of How to Train Your Political Animal a Power Handbook for Changing Yourself and Your World. But it just a personal reflection then on that time as a, as a young woman
0: coming into politics, what was that like? Um, it, it was really quite extraordinary. Um, in Tasmania, because of our small population, you have a real opportunity to influence change in a role like that. And I was really quite grateful for it and I didn't I wasn't one of those people who just sat still and and put up with the status quo so i I was always um, finding out what the latest thinking was and trying to get people to be more strategic it's a very reactive environment and I was uh, really wanting to see how the psychology of politics worked how we could Um, you know, put something into play that might have benefits down the track, all of those things. So it, it really shaped my skills and my strategic thinking um, to be able to, to think about things on lots of levels, you know, does it, is it the right thing to do? You know, does it make a difference to people's lives, but does it, you know, negate our vote? Or does it bring us votes? Or does it forge alliances? You know, there's so many things to think of when you're making decisions in roles like that.
1: Mm. so i 'm sure there's a lot of wisdom uh, in how to train your political animal a power handbook for changing yourself and your world i'd just like to pick up on something you just said in that previous answer because i think it's 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 so critically important for effective communication that communication be lined up behind strategy and but as you quite rightly identify uh, it's a it's a difficult environment often to be strategic because of the, you know the, because of the context because of the way things change the way things information moves the way you know opposition's and governments and you know interest groups and the media and everyone's seeking to influence what the narrative is and where it needs to be so through that experience how how were you able to encourage um, the people that you worked with and the teams that you work with and indeed even training yourself to be strategic in that maelstrom which is often you know the reality of politics
0: well i think it's a having a plan you know i did get this advice later in my career that you know the only reason to have a plan is to be able to change it and i think that's probably right but to to know where you're going so what outcome are you trying to create and then to put the steps in place, knowing that, as you say, there's a maelstrom, you're being buffeted, there's so much going on. But to be able to know this is this is where we want to get to, how we get there is going to change, but this is where we're going to get to. And also, this is who we are. And I think this is what's not overt um in, in workplaces or in, in a, certainly a political environment, which is what your values are. You know, what do you stand for and what do you believe in and what are you prepared to compromise on? Because it's a, an art of compromise. I always called myself a pragmatic idealist because uh, we can have the ideal, but we have to be able to, to trade something away because we're not always going to get it and we have to take what we can get along the path. So uh, having that sense of who you are and where you're going is absolutely key.
1: And did you find that that was the case also working inside government, not just in political offices, but there was always a trade-off, that there was always something that you needed to be able to give? You needed to hold your values and your ideals and your principles close, but you needed to be thoughtful in the way you managed yourself in order to achieve the ultimate objective. It might be a, a zigzag path, very rarely a straight line.
0: Yeah, um, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, in in government roles that I had as well, um, always brought that strategic thinking to those roles and, you, you know, you'd, you'd get idealists in, in government and uh, but it's much more about... The compromise and letting things go and being really pragmatic about that. But I also, I suppose, in those roles, it's more about, well, what are your values? You know, can you work with this or is it a incomplete contradiction to your values? And that's where some of that work's really challenging.
1: Mm. It's interesting that this is your experience and we've spoken about it on this podcast before. The OECD has for the first time taken a thorough look at public sector communication globally and they uh, uh, examined 46 countries and governments, uh, national governments around the world. Uh, And interestingly, one of the big takeaways is exactly that, that there is a complete, not a complete, but a, a very large lack of strategic planning and strategic thinking in public sector communication. Would that tally with your view of the world, that, that there is that lack of strategic thinking, and it's uh, the exception rather than the rule.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think what's valued in that work is that ability to be really nimble and be able to move quickly, and that they're really important skills, but we need that anchor. And, you know, there needs to be a voice in those conversations about where we're going here and not just this week or this next 24 hours, but what's the long-term objective here? What are we trying to change and how is this getting us towards that? And then it's about, you know, the language that we use that's, that's accessible for a whole range of people. But I, I definitely would agree that there is a la- lack of strategic thinking very much... Um, reactive rather than proactive.
1: So let's get to the book. And I'm fascinated to to understand what is in um, How to Train Your Political Animal, a power handbook for changing yourself and your world. But again, perhaps before we talk precisely about the book, take me through the the point where you thought, I'm going to write a book. What? <laughs> What was the motivation?
0: I grew up want, actually studying, wanting to be a journalist and always loving writing. I've always um, uh, been a writer. I love speech writing uh, in particular. So writing is a no-brainer for me. I just love words and the whole process of uh, and the whole craft. Um, so that's something that's uh, from a young age. Then um, what happened was I went from... So I went from university into a political office and was a political advisor for 10, 12 years. And then I took a job in in government, um, in the bureaucracy where I helped set up the climate change office for Tasmania. And in that experience, what I learned was that there are these amazing, passionate people who want to make change. And they had no idea about the politics. So I realised that I I knew something that other people don't, and it was, it was quite a uh, a revelation at the time. So I would work with these um, very professional, diligent um, public servants, and help them craft arguments, uh, build relationships that would make them more powerful to to make to help push the climate change agenda to have more influence over decision makers in that in that field. And so I did that for a while. And then I, I was asked to, to um, go back into the Premier's office for the last couple of years of, of Labor's term. And on my way out, I wrote um, Mel's Guide to Political Persuasion 101. It was a um, one page list of tips for my colleagues in the climate change office that's all it was it was just about how to how to use their influence to get the change they wanted to see and i, I had that and i they, they really appreciated it and i i just thought oh there's something in this there's something here that uh that i know that others don't and i wanted to i didn't want it to be a mystery i wanted people to know this stuff so that they can use their power to make change so it is a really a
1: handbook for public servants to understand better
0: their their their
1: world so they can be more effective
0: yes public servants but beyond that so workers in any organization who want to make change um, not-for-profits community sector organization businesses um, and also activists so people who want to make change in their communities they might be on school associations or on boards or, you know, wanting to, to get a bike path up in their uh, local community. So it's for, for a very broad range of people.
1: Okay. So let's distill it. What's the magic? What's the advice? What are you going to tell so people? If you've got a few minutes to sit down with someone, what's the framework that you can help them with?
0: So politics is not a dirty word. Some people are afraid of it. They think other people are better at it than they are. They think they don't want to be involved in it. So the message is when you don't participate, you're leaving the decisions to people who may be more self-interested than you. So it's up to you if you want to see change in your world, if, is to, it's up to you to step into your own power and participate and learn how to do that.
1: Okay. Okay. That's the first bit. So once, you, once you're participating, what do you do mm. next?
0: So then uh, I talk about uh, listening skills as being incredibly important. So the best way to influence change is to listen. So to um, quietly observe what's going on and understand what's going on and listen to the people you're communicating with. The other lesson is don't sleepwalk. So stay awake, pay attention, especially to the power dynamics that are going on around you. Really be curious about that. And then the other key a bit of advice is create allies, make friends, build your relationships because if we want to change what we do, our, our workplace, um, our organization, our communities, our society, It's really hard to do that on your own. We are much stronger together.
1: So power dynamics, that's a really interesting um, description for any collection of people, really, that in any group there are power dynamics. So how do you go about unpicking those power dynamics so that you can understand it in a way that is useful and relevant?
0: So I, one bit of advice that's in the book and I, I talk about in my workshops is um when you're in a meeting and you you know you can sit there, you've got the opportunity to observe, take the minutes of the unspoken. So the unspokens in uh, where people sit, what the body language is like, who's who's talking the most, who's chairing and why, who are they listening to. There's power dynamics in every relationship, and especially where we we come together as strangers to get things done. And we don't operate in a vacuum. We operate in uh, structural and cultural power dynamics as well, where certain groups of people have a higher status in our society than others. uh, And so we operate within that. So as a a little person, you know, in a workplace um, doing their job, Noticing how decisions get made and who influences it, who, whose voices are listened to, is really key for understanding the power dynamics. So we talk about um, your personal power, your relational power, and then your collective power. So your personal power is, is inside yourself and your ability to change. That's why part of the book title is Changing Yourself and Your World. Uh, your relational power is those allies I talked about. So building relationships with people that make your, you you stronger and can make the case for change. Uh, and then your collective power is how you work together. So those teams that you can build uh, to 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 make change, but also respond to change. It's such a fluid, uncertain environment that we all operate in. How do we how do we um, deal with that environment? So it's. It's about, first of all, seeing that you have some power, then understanding what that looks like and then using it.
1: That's fascinating. That, that framework that you've just articulated, I think that's a very useful and powerful framework that people can, can apply in their daily work. And I love that phrase of, you know, don't sleepwalk because I think so many times... We go into meetings and we're not active. We're just passive. We just sit there and we listen. We don't think about it. So how do, you, how do you get people to activate this curiosity and activate this interest so that they can better understand the dynamics?
0: It's a great word, curiosity, and I think it's as simple as that. Take your curiosity to work. Um, there's a great phrase I also use in workshops, which is practice curiosity over judgment. Um, over what? Sorry. Over, over judgment. Judge- yeah. Okay. Practice yep. curiosity over judgment. The political environment that I, you know, gr- grew up in uh, is a very, um, it's a very rewarding one, but it's also can be very judgmental, very cynical, very gossipy. Uh, a lot of assumptions made about people. So when I left all of that behind, I wanted to open myself up to people who are different to me, people who had different points of view to me, and just to be really curious about that and not judge it, not be defensive about my views. Uh, And so that's what I'm trying to show through the book and my workshops is take that curiosity with you and be really open and let go some of these old things you might have hung on to or let go of assumptions you might make about certain groups of people or people that you interact with and just really listen because that's where we can find the connections and find better ways to communicate um, when we really understand the people that we're talking to.
1: Mm. And I love that phrase also, um, taking the minutes of the unspoken. That's a really, (laughs) that's very powerful as well, isn't it? And that's again... Uh, gives you a role, doesn't matter who you are, you know, you could be the most junior person or the most senior person, but it opens you up to be far more observant if you take the minutes of the unspoken.
0: Mm. And, and it is, uh, these are habits that we accumulate over our lifetime and, you know, to work to... Yeah, or don't, or we get stuck in, in old ones, yeah. So it takes a while to work work through it. And so we can create, we can train our brain, we can create new habits. And one thing I say, uh, especially to, to CEOs and leaders that I work with is seek out that, the new person. There's nothing as valuable as a new person in an organisation, doesn't matter what level they are, because they come in, it's like being in a, a new country with all your senses alive, they come in and they notice everything mm-hmm. um, and they kind of bring a naivety almost. And, and when we've been there a little while, we become part of the furniture. So we just kind of accept things. You know, we are, we adapt, we're very adaptive creatures, human beings, so we just accept things as they are and we don't question them anymore. But the, the new people question them and then you can learn from them and you can teach yourself to keep questioning and keep turning up with fresh eyes, which is really important for any, any organisation. So what other
1: tips, what was, what else was on that one page, you know, because again, I can imagine what was there was don't sleepwalk, you know, be the taker of the minutes of the unspoken, seek out the new person.
0: What, what else was on that list? Well, um, when we think about influencing people, um, people might be surprised to realise that the the best skill in influencing people is listening as well. So I've been in meetings where I've, you know, been supporting a a minister or a premier there as an advisor and highly intelligent people will come in for their half hour. They will have really well-prepared notes. They will have data. Um, They'll have all this information um, to try to persuade a minister to their point of view. And I've watched those people fail um, because what they haven't brought into the room is some political intelligence and some understanding of where that minister will be coming from at that point. Now, we can't know everything. I mean, Tassie's small, so we kind of know everyone, but, uh, but we can't know everything. <laughs> we can't well, know I tell everything.
1: You, I, I, that's true. But also, I think one of the things that people need to pay attention to in this day and age are the social media feeds of our yes. health ministers.
0: Yes. That's, yeah.
1: That, they're full of gold, and if you really want to know what they think, that's what they think.
0: Yes. And so, so there's so many clues. You're right. There's so many clues out there about what's going on. So if you're going into influence a minister in that very tiny amount of time that you have, think about where they're coming from because we all have filters. We're all listening out, listening out for things. You're doing it right now in your job, David. We're all. Um, we're listening oh. for certain things yeah. you know so that minister and you, know, or that, and you know
1: when so, you, you know when someone says that so, it's like ah yeah I'm, I'm onto that you know if you're really yeah. actively engaged um yes. that's you know you, you you know when it comes
0: yes that's right and being really present in that moment to to listen out for that too so so you know trying to understand that 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 person isn't going to love your idea as much as you do, but they might love a bit of it. So, what what can you what can you give them that they'll actually hear? So, you know, I would I'm a, a headspace person. I work in concepts and ideas. That's what I do. But I would have to brief ministers who aren't like that. They might be more heart space. So I learnt to cha- take my information and frame it up as a story or an anecdote that might have more power um, and, uh, um, for that minister than, than it would for someone else. So it's, it's really tailoring to your audience, not to manipulate, but to be persuasive, um, to be able to be heard.
1: That's fantastic advice. That's a fantastic advice, really. Um, again, because I think it gets to that point about persuasion of to be more effective um, you've got to prepare uh, and you do have to be alert and you do have to be awake and you don't have to be you know make sure you're not sleepwalking so as you do make sure um, that the data and the evidence and everything that you've got is prepared in a way that's going to be received um, to its optimum point because otherwise why, why make the effort
0: yeah, that's right. And th- th- there are lots of clues. I worked with one community group that wanted to, to get a project up uh, in their community with police and young people. And we were workshopping this idea. They hadn't had much luck with their local council. So I said, right, who's the ultimate decision maker? Don't do the spray and pray, like hit your target. Who Who's making the decision? Um, and what do you know about them? And it was a small community, so they knew a bit. And Someone said, oh, I think he's a stats man. Yeah, he's into his numbers. And I said, well, how can we, how do we know? And so we looked up the annual report and sure enough, his report um, in that for the council was, you know, full of lots of data and interesting statistics. So I said, rightio, let's work on that. So your best shot of being heard by this individual is to present some data. Uh, And um, that's what they did. And they got past first base, which was great. So uh, apart
1: from doing that preparation around decision makers and influences of decision makers, what's your best advice to people around uh, around that, around sort of understanding decision makers and, and their influences?
0: Um, really, it's about networks and understanding the people around them. So Certainly the, the first step is that, you know, working out who's deciding um, with this thing that you care about, who, who's deciding, but then who do they listen to? So who influences them? Um, so, uh, and it might not be the obvious people. So, you know, in a lot of cases with boards, the chair's not necessarily the most powerful person. There could be someone else on that board who, who has stronger relational power you know, on the board and outside it. So they might have relationships that influence the the chair. So it's that looking around and and seeing what the networks are and then what, what your networks are and how you're using those. So in influencing in some circumstances, it might be, you know, that you've got one person who's who's proposing a change or, or um, lobbying on an issue, but they might not be the best person to go and talk to the decision-maker. It might be someone else. So, you know, we've, in political strategy, when we've been trying to achieve law reform, we've identified people in the community who, who would go and talk to members of parliament, for example, um, mm. about the, the change, because their voice is much more powerful uh, than, than yours might be.
1: So, Melinda, we could talk all day, really, and I'm sure there is just so much more in the book How to Train Your Political Animal, a power handbook for changing yourself and your World." Um, and I'm really looking forward to diving into the book. And I know it's available uh, in Tasmania at Fuller's Bookshop, but it's also available in Australia, Amazon, Amazon, um, booktopia dimmix uh it's available as an ebook on booktopia it's available in the uk uh on amazon and it's available in the us at amazon and barnes and noble so people are able um to get their hands on this and it seems to me that you might have identified a bit of a niche um because maybe another part of your motivation was that you
0: might have been looking for something like this and couldn't find it would that be fair to say Yes, it is. And also what I what I see when I look out, and I, I saw this most, I must say, in the public service, was people who are really passionate, but they're really worn down. And I think uh, COVID's unlocked this energy. People are reflecting on their lives and they're wanting to change things and they want meaningful work and they want to make a difference. And they didn't quite have the toolkit you know I see other people sort of playing these political games I don't know don't understand it don't know how to do it and I just wanted to hand over everything I knew you know in one neat yeah. place all the tips that would help people who are in that position um, to, to open their world up to make that change because all of that energy and all that potentials there I just see that it's locked up we just need to tap away at it and let it out and we can do extraordinary things
1: Wonderful. What a great way to finish a a fascinating conversation. Now, if people want to reach out to you, what's the, you know, as you say, you mentioned you're you're a facilitator of workshops and professional learning. Um, You're available um, for people who have got stories to tell that you would like to, that may like to work with you. What's the best way um, for people to to connect with you?
0: Uh, Through my website. So melindamaddock.com. Um, you can send me a message through my website and I will get in touch. Fantastic. Well, Melinda Maddock,
1: thank you so much for sharing the last 40 minutes with us. That's just bang on uh, for this audience. This is the purpose. This is why this podcast exists. And I'm sure that, a lot of people working in government communication um, will certainly take to heart that that challenge around strategy, but also understanding that the reason to have a plan is to change it because you're going to it is going to change. But you've got to have a plan in in the first place. And there's just so much other wisdom there um, that you've shared with us. You know, don't sleep work. Be curious. You know, take the minutes. Uh, be the the minute taker of the unspoken in those meetings. So I'm sure that people are scribbling down um, just as I've been scribbling down through this um uh, conversation you know just drinking from a fire hydrant so thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom um with the audience today and to you the audience thank you for coming back once again what a great conversation with such a talented experienced um political operative and i, I love the fact that um Melinda said, you know, politics isn't a dirty word. It's not a dirty word. If you want to make change, if you want to have impact, whether you're inside the bureaucracy or outside the bureaucracy, you have to engage. It's not just going to magically happen. And, you know, Melinda learned this back in year six when she wanted to go on camp with the other six, year six class. She learned it again. It was reinforced when she wanted to, when she was sort of unhinged a little by what was happening um, around nuclear disarmament and did something about it. But I I think that's the other thing that she took action. And when she wanted to share um, what she knows with the rest of the world, she's written a book. So there you go, again, taking action, it happens. The people who get things done known for taking action so really grateful for melinda uh, coming along today and grateful for you for coming back once again um we'll we'll be back at the same time in two weeks but before i say goodbye a big thanks to olivia casamento for organizing today's conversation and to ben curry the technical uh, producer of the GovCons podcast we'll be back at the same time in two weeks but for the moment it's bye for now
0: You've been listening to the GovCom's podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.